I once took a flight over Saudi Arabia's empty quarter. There was nothing to see but a desolate stretch of desert, larger than France. But hidden under the undulating sea of red sand dunes was Al Sheba, one of the world's largest oil fields. As I stared out of the plane window, I realized that Saudi Arabia could develop another dozen fields the same size, all without making a dent in its vast reserves of oil. Extracting oil in Saudi Arabia is as easy as sucking from a straw in the ground. That's great news for the world economy, but dire news for the planet. After a century of filling the atmosphere with too much carbon dioxide, we need to find urgent ways of removing greenhouse gases from the air. Instead of lifting oil up from the ground, we now need to suck carbon down from the air. But is it really possible to turn the straw around? I'm Vijay Vaitiswar, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. And I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we're taking a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies that'll be needed in the fight against extreme climate change. And in this week's episode, we'll take a look at ways to keep the Earth from overheating by removing greenhouse gas emissions from the atmosphere. We'll look at the many different ways it can be done, from planting forests to restoring degraded landscapes. And we'll go to Iceland to visit the world's largest facility for removing carbon from the air and storing it in the ground. Joining me once again are Katrine Brachik, Environment Editor at The Economist, and our Briefings Editor, Oliver Morton. Hi, Vijay. Nice to see you. Hi, guys. So, Ollie, how important is it to remove greenhouse gases from the atmosphere? The capacity is very important because the amount of warming you have depends on the amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. If you actually want to cool the planet or if you want to make up for some emissions, then you have to be able to take some carbon dioxide out of that stock. So in the long term, in terms of managing the climate, it's absolutely crucial to be able to have that capacity. Otherwise, you've got a control which only goes in one direction. Yeah, there's sort of two big reasons that are cited for needing negative emissions. One is that we are very likely to overshoot the Paris temperature targets of 1.5 to 2 degrees. So you need some way of bringing it back down. The other is that by 2050, even if economies have managed to reduce their emissions to close to zero, it's very unlikely that they will have completely eliminated them. So achieving net zero involves removing the remainder. And how much has to be removed? A huge amount. So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change tells us that if we want to stick to this one and a half degree target that's at the core of the Paris Agreement, then by 2100, by the end of the century, more than 700 billion tons of carbon dioxide need to have been removed from the atmosphere. And that is the equivalent to all the CO2 that was emitted by the United States, the United Kingdom, Germany, and China since the Industrial Revolution. To put it into slightly more manageable terms, we're talking about 10 to 20 billion tons being sucked out of the atmosphere every year, roughly in the second half of the century. and Today, the world emits somewhere between 35 and 40 billion tonnes a year. So, Kat, it basically sounds like you're talking about something completely impossible. You're talking about something that's on the same order of magnitude as today's emissions going into reverse when we have never done anything like that in the past at all. 
Yeah, I mean, impossible, I think, remains to be seen. I wouldn't be quite so pessimistic. But in terms of reversing the fossil fuel industry, yes, that's absolutely true. We have a couple of pathways to take us on this impossible task through biological methods as well as technological ones. Kat, can you tell us about the biological ones? The planet has natural carbon sinks. There are natural ways in which the carbon is sucked out of the atmosphere and stored. And these are things like plants, like the soil, like the oceans. So increasing the amount of vegetation on the Earth can help achieve negative emissions? Yeah, that's the idea. As you can imagine, there are huge accounting issues here. So problems with what counts as new vegetation, how much additional carbon it's actually capturing, how long that carbon will be stored for, etc. But yes, the idea is that you would increase the work that natural ecosystems are doing in terms of absorbing and storing carbon. And then as part of this same rough bucket, there's also something called bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. That's another form of biological sequestration. It's quite distinct, though, from increasing carbon stored in natural ecosystems. And the basic idea is that you grow crops for bioenergies, and then you burn them. That generates energy. And then before the CO2 emissions from that burning ends up in the atmosphere, you capture it and shove it underground somewhere in a geological store. So the net process is negative because the carbon has come out of the atmosphere by way of photosynthesis and then it ends up underground. So if we all grow chia pets, we can help tackle climate change? Well, speaking for this side of the Atlantic, I don't think we actually know what a chia pet is, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say, no, they're not going to save the world. I've heard of chia pets. Apparently, you can grow them in the shape of Donald Trump and uh, they're basically sprouts. Okay, I stand by my original answer. (laughs) They're not going to save the world. They're going to die and their carbon dioxide is is going to go back into the atmosphere. Yet another blow for my effort to advance personal action against climate change. Now, Kat, you've been speaking to an expert on natural emissions reductions. Yeah, that's right, Vijay. I had a fascinating conversation with Natalie Seddon, who is an expert in biodiversity. She's at the University of Oxford here in the UK. She's also the founding director of the Nature-Based Solutions Initiative. So Natalie advocates for really thinking quite carefully about what we call nature-based solutions. When you protect existing intact ecosystems, whether you're peatlands or your old-growth tropical forests, You're protecting the carbon that's locked up in those natural sinks, so you're reducing emissions. Meanwhile, when you restore degraded lands and you more sustainably manage your working lands, this increases the absorption of greenhouse gases from the atmosphere. So in other words, these actions, protecting and restoring ecosystems, these can increase the sinks and decrease the sources of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Can you give us some examples of these different nature-based solutions and perhaps also some ways of enhancing sinks that, in your definition, wouldn't qualify as nature-based solutions? So some key examples would be in bringing trees into cities, green walls, green roofs, and so forth to help reduce the impacts of heat waves and to help reduce the impacts of floods. You've got nature-based agricultural practices An example such as agroforestry, which is planting trees among crops and crops among trees, and this can enhance or even increase crop yields in an increasingly uncertain and increasingly dry or drought-stricken world. And then you've got other biological forms of sequestration and storage, 
such as BECS, which is biomass energy, carbon capture and storage on one hand, and you've got something called afforestation on the other. Now, afforestation is planting trees in areas where trees don't naturally occur. So, for example, that could involve putting up a conifer plantation on a peat bog. And afforestation and BECS tend to involve more what's called monocultures, so plantations of single species or at most one or two species. And these have the potential to draw down quite a lot of carbon in the short term, but they don't have long-term resilience. Many of our listeners will have heard of or possibly invested themselves in tree planting offset schemes with the idea that they are doing their bit to help the climate. How valid is that impression? Are there issues with these programs? It's very important that if you're going to invest in nature-based solutions, that you adhere to these four policy guidelines. And the first one is that nature-based solutions play a vitally important part of the climate solutions, but they're not a substitute for rapid fossil fuel phase-outs and therefore must not delay urgent action to decarbonize our economies. So any funding for nature-based solutions from carbon offsetting schemes really must only come from those entities that have credible, ambitious and verifiable net zero plans. The second one is nature-based solutions need to involve the protection and restoration of a wide range of naturally occurring intact ecosystems. So not just forests, not just tree planting schemes. And they also need to involve sustainable management of our working lands. The third thing is that nature-based solutions need to be designed and implemented by or in partnership with Indigenous peoples and local communities in a way that generates local benefits and respects their local rights. And the fourth thing is that nature-based solutions must sustain or enhance the diversity of native species and habitats in order to be resilient, because it is the diversity of species which gives ecosystems their resilience in a warming world. Right. And in fact, I've heard that more diverse ecosystems store more carbon as well. They do. Intact biodiverse ecosystems are much better at drawing down and storing carbon for the long term. They're much more resilient. You know, I like to compare it, you know, if you want to make investments, you have a diverse portfolio because you don't know what's going to do well in a very volatile market. It's the same thing. We know that a lot of change is coming. We don't know exactly what that change is going to look like. And the more species you have, the more likely it is that some of them will be able to continue playing their role in the ecosystem in the face of that change. Ollie, what did you make of the distinction Natalie made there between what she calls nature-based solutions versus things like afforestation and bioenergy with carbon capture and storage? Well, I really like the way that Natalie presents the nature-based solutions because biodiversity has a certain value in itself and it does also make things robust. And I particularly appreciate the stress on the rights of indigenous people and on bringing local benefits. The problem I have with nature-based solutions is I just worry that there's a limit to the area over which they can be instantiated and the political will there will be to look after them. If you're going to go for negative emissions that suck down tens and hundreds of billions of tons of carbon dioxide, I think you're just not going to find that much room in nature. And although in many ways BEX is a really rather nasty idea, it does have the advantage that it both produces energy and it moves carbon dioxide into a both larger and more long-lasting storage system somewhere underground. So I think if you have a bit of nature that you can make into a better carbon sink while helping local people, 
and preserving or enhancing biodiversity, well, yeah, absolutely go for it. It's an answer, but it's certainly not the answer. So, Ollie, while you're keeping an open mind, you're clearly a little bit skeptical about this approach. Kat, why don't you tell us how big a deal this can really be? There's a potential for around 10 gigatons of carbon dioxide being absorbed per year globally in what Natalie considers to be genuine nature-based solution. In parallel to these projects, you absolutely have to be mitigating emissions as well. You need to be bringing emissions down and aiming for a world that is basically Paris compliant. If you do, then that 10 gigatons can translate into roughly 0.3 degrees off of your two degrees world. So it's actually theoretically significant, but that's with a lot of ifs and buts in terms of implementation. That's a very, very ambitious nature-based solution. That's not just a few wetlands down the back of Asda. That's sort of like serious country-sized landscapes being radically reformed. Yes. And that might be a good thing, but it's not the sort of thing that people have historically been terribly good at. That's actually a really important point because the 10 gigatons requires, for instance, ending deforestation entirely, halting the destruction of all ecosystems worldwide. And as Ollie says, we being humanity have a terrible track record at doing this. So I'd say it's a ambitious, bordering on unrealistic estimate, but it gives you a scale of what theoretically could be achieved if the human species were more coordinated and possibly had different values to the ones we have today. All right, then. So trees are great, but they won't be enough. We're also going to need technology. We'll hear more about some of those technological solutions in just a moment. First, a reminder, if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash climate pod. The new issue includes an in-depth briefing on the latest advances in hydrogen technology. Economist.com slash climate pod is the link to subscribe if you'd like to read that. It's in the notes for this episode. So if planting trees won't remove enough carbon out of the atmosphere to reduce the risk of climate change, we may have to rely on technology to help. That's right, Vijay. And those technological solutions are actually already on the horizon. So direct air capture, for instance, is a way of sucking carbon dioxide directly out of the atmosphere. And it can then either be used to make something like synthetic fuels, for instance, or carbonated water, in which case, importantly, it's not permanently removed from the atmosphere. It ends up back up there eventually. Or to permanently remove it, you can store it underground. Now, this is an entirely new technology. Carbon dioxide has been scrubbed from the air in closed submarines, spacecraft, and space station for decades. That's true. The challenge here, though, is doing it on a massive scale. So for the technology to be climate relevant, to help stabilize the climate in a safe zone, we need to be removing gigatons, billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and finding ways to effectively store it. All of this at a cost that is not prohibitive. A number of companies are trying to do just that. And a couple of weeks ago, I went to see the launch of a direct air capture plant in Iceland. Turn right to stay on Iceland's abundant geothermal power, as well as its volcanic geology, make it a really good place to set up to capture and store CO2 from the air. I went to see a direct air capture facility called Orca that was set up by the company Climeworks. 
Your destination is on the right. What we've done here is we've built the world's largest direct air capture and storage plant. Christoph Beutler is head of climate policy at Climeworks. I met him standing in front of what was essentially a series of large green shipping containers stacked in pairs and perched on stilts. What you see here is two units stacked on top of each other and one of these units is a 40-foot container. What you see within are 12 fans and six sub-modules in there that have two fans each and, and we pull the air through. Mm-hmm. And obviously we have to pull a lot of air through because we're chasing 415 parts uh, per million. Climeworks has patented innovation. The thing that allows it to remove carbon dioxide from thin air is a solid chemical filter that sits directly behind the fans. Oh, so that's, those are the filters. Yeah. Air is drawn through the filter by the fans and the filter selectively binds the molecules of CO2. Once the filter is saturated, we then heat it up to 100 degrees Celsius, which is the great thing about our technology. It only needs 100 degrees to desorb to make the CO2 unstick from the filter. When all 96 fans are running, Orca can extract 40,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide each year. This is only a tiny amount compared to what would need to be removed from the atmosphere to have any impact on climate change. But it is an exciting start for Climeworks co-founders Jan Wurzbacher and another Christoph, Christoph Gebaut, who I was with at Orca as they saw the fans being switched on for the first time. Awesome. Music. Music. It's music in our ears. <laughs> okay, this is actually the most special moment in today. <laughs> You've seen this guy? No, I've oh. not been here. Thanks to COVID. I saw it the first time. So what does it feel like? Yeah, awesome. <laughs> it makes the heartbeat. Yeah. yeah. Once the carbon dioxide is removed from ambient air, it can either be used or stored away somewhere permanent, like inside the rocks beneath my feet. Orca is in Iceland because something like 90% of the country is made of basaltic lava, which reacts with CO2 and turns it to solid carbonate minerals. So we set out with this idea on paper back in 2007. And of course, there was a lot of work to do, creating a technology that would allow us to imitate and accelerate this natural process of permanently transforming CO2 into stone. Edda Eredottir is the CEO of Carbfix, an Icelandic company with a mission to store CO2. So then we thought, oh, why don't we just inject the CO2? Just here, we could store within our basalts more than 100 times the amount that the whole world needs to capture and store until 2060. Thousands of of gigatons. Carbfix has partnered with Climeworks to store the CO2 they extract from air inside Iceland's basalts. Leading away from the Orca facility are underground pipes that take the newly separated carbon dioxide out into the surrounding plain and mountains. To see where they stored the carbon, I drove a few kilometers down the road to an isolated hut where I was met by Kari Hegelson, head of research and innovation for Carbfix. We are receiving CO2 from the Orca plant. It comes through this building right here. Um, I can show you indoors here. The quantities of the CO2 aren't that great. 4,000 tons per year, it translates into, I don't know, X kilograms per day. So it all comes through this pipe right here. 
and it goes to here. And when Climeworks pr provides us with CO2, they build enough pressure for it to go into the injection well. Pipe goes back on the ground. Outside the container. It goes in the gas phase, so it dissolves in the water underground. And how far down do the pipes go? It's cased down to 400 meters, and then it starts flowing wherever it wants to go. It's, uh, it takes a very short time to mineralize. Or in other words, very the carbonated water that Carvix injects into the bedrock reacts with the basalts to form solid, white, crystalline carbonates, which are very stable and effectively store the carbon indefinitely. One thing that makes Iceland's basalts particularly good for the task is that they are porous. Yeah. yeah. You can see like the lava all around us here. Yeah, so this this is all lava. Mm -hmm. Roughly 2,000 years old. And you can see it has moss all over it. It looks quite beautiful today. It's almost phosphorescent in the yeah. light. It sort of glows yeah, on its that's own. Right. It's that's really right. amazing tape. And this is, this is a porehole. Yeah, and you can see the results here. This guy right here, the, the porous one. So we're looking at a cylinder of sponge-like rock, grey, quite heavy. Quite heavy, but still it's, it's got a lot of empty space in it. And then you've got the mineralized uh, carbon inside uh, this particular core. So this core was taken uh, from a greater depth, five to 600 meters depth. Okay. Um, and you have, uh, these pores are completely filled with minerals. And this is mostly calcite. Uh, yeah, and you can see the sort of color difference, can't you? Yep. So the calcites are, are white. Yep, there's these, these white kind of crystals filling up the pores in the basalt. And the storage space is absolutely enormous. If the costs can be brought down and the volumes increased, direct air capture could have an impact on atmospheric CO2 levels. And there are other projects around the world. But in order for this technology to be relevant, the number and size of facilities will need to be scaled up dramatically. Our job is to build a market that is not yet existing and to build a technology that is existing or starting to exist. Christoph Gubalt is a CEO of Climeworks. The potential of a company like ours is, say, a gigaton, half a gigaton to a gigaton by 2050. The job to be done is 10 billion tons by 2050. Half of that nature, the other half tech. This plant is here to inspire, showing people this is this thing, right? 4,000 tons year after year, it puts it in the ground. And be our guests, you can have a share of that. That makes it really tangible. It's an early stage and it's still not cheap, right? But imagine it's the 1990s and I, I would be talking to you about solar panels. Christoph Beutler again. Our pathway for this decade is basically to add one order of magnitude every two to three years. So we're already planning the next one, which will be 40,000. And, and then, you know, another one at 400,000 roughly in 2027, 20, 28. It's much like the car industry. There has to be the Henry Ford moment, otherwise it, it won't work. So Kat, that's a fascinating example of direct air capture being used to suck CO2 out of the atmosphere. That's just one company out of many that are working on this. Can you tell us how does this differ from other kinds of carbon sequestration that are happening in industrial processes? Yeah. So first of all, to your point about it being just one company, yes. And I think that's important. This is currently the largest direct air capture plant in the world, sucking 4,000 tons per year. But hot on their heels is carbon engineering over in North America, which is planning on having a much larger plant within the next four to five years. 
And just to add to that, there are a few big companies that are sort of leading the way, but there's a whole host of smaller companies just begging to get into the field as well. If that's the case, maybe I can ask, why hasn't this technology taken off in a bigger way already? Does it really have the mojo to scale up to the level needed? I wouldn't care to speak to its mojo, um, <laughs> but I think I can answer the rest of the question, which is that it's very expensive. So Climeworks charges $1,000 per ton of carbon dioxide sequestered. I think carbon engineering might be more in the $300, but those are really high prices for carbon dioxide. Cutting emissions is so much cheaper at the moment than sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, that it's only the promise that this will matter in the future or a few strange regulatory loopholes which justify there being any direct air capture industry at all at the moment. Yeah, and people don't have much use for carbon dioxide. They've got even less use for carbon dioxide that ends up locked up underground. And I think it's a good thing that it's currently much cheaper to cut CO2 emissions than it is to remove it and store it away. There's a lot of sort of very niche interest in this. But Kat, let me press you on that. It sounds like a death by a thousand niches could be our fate in a climate constrained world. How do we get this to scale? Is it a question of a stiff carbon price? Or do we say this is a public good, taking carbon out of the air, sticking it in the ground in a very long-term way, should be heavily subsidized? Is it a question of regulation, banning some form of industrial carbon emissions? What's your bet on, if you had to bet on one horse? If I had to bet on one horse, it would definitely be that governments are going to have to get involved in this. I think the, the price of it is so high that there is going to have to be regulation and serious government incentives put in place in order to push this industry. So you're betting on two side-by-side -side horses yoked together. That is government, but you want both regulation, which is a form of a ban on activity, as well as subsidies to incentivize the new technology. Ollie. What horse are you betting on? I think the largest amount of carbon dioxide that humans will sequester away will be sequestered by means of what's called enhanced mineral weathering, which is a way of speeding up natural mineralization reactions that take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It's in fact not that dissimilar from the process that's going on underneath Iceland in the carbon dioxide reservoirs that Kat was just reporting on. I think this will be comparatively cheap and I think it will be pretty effective, certainly if you're talking about many, many billions of tons of carbon dioxide. But I also don't think it's going to be remotely fast. Most of the carbon dioxide that humans take out of the atmosphere will be taken out in the 22nd and 23rd centuries, not the 21st. So your horse is a mule and it's often the uh, pasture far away, it sounds like. No, my assessment is a realistic one that doesn't say, oh, we've got a magic horse that can get us places. I think it's very unlikely that you're going to get an industry that's capable of sucking tens of billions of tons of carbon out of the atmosphere every year. All right, well, let me introduce a unicorn into this race. I predict that within a decade, this form of engineered carbon capture, that is direct air capture with geological sequestration, will approach the $100 per ton limit. You've been talking about $1,000. And when we have that as an available and scalable solution at hand, all the other things that we can do, that is to reduce emissions at source, energy efficiency, and various mitigation efforts, as well as other kinds of biological sequestration, will suddenly scale up because you'll have an upper bound as to how much this problem will cost society. And I think that's how we make progress. I think that's spectacularly unlikely and actually rather dangerous. The problem with the idea that because you can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at a certain price, people will, is that there will have to be exchanges to make that happen. Who is responsible for taking out other people's carbon dioxide emissions and who pays for that? Mm -hmm.
unless you believe that there's going to be a global carbon pricing system, which we know that there will not be, and certainly not $100 a ton, then how does that actually work? Who's responsible for cleaning up the carbon dioxide that other people are emitting? It's a fair point, but I also think that it is still worth at least developing the solutions so that they're on the table. I think it's very well worth developing the technologies as long as we don't fall into the trap of thinking that they're solutions if we don't have a political and social context in which they will actually do the sort of things that you are very optimistically and in a way that my heart goes out to suggesting that they might. Okay, I think we get the clear sense that technology while very promising in this area, is not going to be the be-all and end-all of tackling climate change. It is going to require also political, societal, and industrial action, as well as personal action. So thank you both. Now, the world isn't all bad news. In the final part of each episode, I want one of us to bring in something encouraging, a story we've read about or a, a deeper trend we've observed or a positive angle we haven't thought about that relates to climate change. So my good news this week is the return of the mammoth or rather the possible return of the vaguely mammoth-like genetically modified elephant. Um, this is the news that a small company in uh, Massachusetts has got some funding to start thinking about how to build uh, what you might call a mammoth-alike, a genetically modified um, elephant which will deal with the sort of climates where mammoths used to live, will have the sort of shackiness that we look for in mammoths, um, probably I hope the big tusks. And the reason why this is good for climate is that mammoths are very useful in keeping down forests in the far north, boreal forests. If there's less forest up there, then it's less warm because the snow in the winter is exposed directly to the sky and reflects sunlight back off, up, up off into the cosmos. And so in general, fewer boreal forests more snow cover that's visible to the universe and less warming. Right. So if you've got mammoth likes, then you've got fewer trees in Siberia. You've got fewer trees. You've got more snow. You've got more snow. You've got more sun being um, bounced back out into space and therefore less global warming. I don't buy it, Ollie. I'm really sorry. So which, which bit don't you buy? The, the, the um, feedback... The mammoths. The, the, the mammoths, yeah, no, I don't really buy the mammoths either. But but if you did have mammoths in Siberia, they would have that effect on the climate. I think that's been very nicely shown by Chris Fields' group at Stanford. Yeah, so the, I don't buy the mammoths. I also actually don't necessarily buy that you just put mammoths in Siberia and suddenly you saved the Arctic. And the the sort of mammoth in the room here is actually a chicken and egg problem. You can't bring back a species into an environmental envelope that it was did not evolve to survive in. So it's... Oh, that's not fair. We move species around all the time and nothing's ever gone wrong. We do move species around all the time, but we don't bring extinct species back when they haven't been around for thousands of years in the environment that they lived in at the time and prospered in, which I think is this. You might be able to get a few mammoths that survive, but you're not going to simply bring them back and have them survive in a hotter Arctic. I'm mindful of the concern raised by Kat, but I want to applaud Ollie, not only for a positive news, but for packing in prehistoric pachyderms <laughs> into our podcast. That's it for this week's episode. Join us next week when we'll explore what role finance can play in addressing climate change. 
Can sustainable investing make a difference? Or is it just greenwashing? Find out next week on To a Lesser Degree, out on Mondays. To a Lesser Degree was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway and Hannah Mourinho. The executive producer was John Shields, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host, Vijay Vaitiswar, and I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate change in the hot seat. See you then.